Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. Now, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this podcast, and to be honest, it doesn't really matter when you do listen to it, but you might be interested to know that I'm recording this just after Christmas. And it gave me an idea for a podcast today, which I hope many of you will be able to relate to, and which I'm sure is going to surprise quite a few of you, because I'm actually going to have a rant. And I think that those of you who know me will probably be a little bit surprised by that because I'm told I come across as being very calm and measured and very laid back. But do you know, there are some things which really get on my nerves as a property investor. And I thought it'd be quite an interesting podcast just to be able to vent my spleen and let all of this built up resentment out in a rant in the new year. So if that's okay with you, I'm going to carry on. And the reason why I thought about this was because it is just after Christmas. Now, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love Christmas. Christmas, I think, is, one, is probably the best time of year. The only time which might be better is the summer, when you can go and lie on the beach, or spring, when everything's coming back to life, or autumn, when all the leaves are falling off the trees and you can go and kick them through the ditches. Whatever. Christmas is fantastic, and I love Christmas. And if I had my own way, I'd probably get my Christmas tree out sometime in September or October. My wife won't let me. But there we are. So don't get me wrong. I'm really for Christmas and I'm passionate about Christmas. But the one thing which I really hate about Christmas, and I don't know whether you can relate to this and whether this this happens to you, but it just seems like the rest of the world decides as soon as Christmas appears on the calendar that they begin to slow down, they begin to take more time off, And eventually, the whole commercial world, particularly around property, seems to grind to a complete halt. Now, is that just me being a bit of a Scrooge and a bit of a humbug? Well, maybe, but it seems to be that way. I, for example, the reason why I think this has really sort of hit home this year, albeit it usually strikes me every year, but this year particularly is because I was trying to exchange contracts on a property. And I had said to the solicitors, and by the way, this is going to be part of my rant in a moment, so I don't want to give any spoiler alerts, but I would said to my solicitor, we need to exchange this deal before Christmas. Oh yes, of course we can, Peter, of course we can. I didn't really believe it at the time, to be honest, because I knew that we were getting near Christmas. And what happened? Well, what happened is what always happens. Week before Christmas, everything's shut. Everything's shutting down, and even if it's open, everybody's off at their Christmas party, or going for drinks early, or they're so full of mince pies they can't even think clearly. It happens every year. Then we get to Christmas, which is fantastic. Then there's the week between Christmas and New Year. What happens that week? Absolutely nothing, which is fine, and you'd expect that. New Year comes and goes. We make all our New Year's resolutions. We start thinking about going back to work, or at least some of us who have got a job think about going back to work. A little inward groan, presumably. What happens then? 4th, 5th of January? Does the world spring back into life? Not at all. It seems to take at least another two weeks before everybody's back up and running. So here we are. We're now, what, a couple of 
weeks into the new year I'm recording this, have I exchanged contracts? I still haven't exchanged contracts. And this is the thing, around Christmas there's always this month where it's just dead time. Now I'm old enough now where I should expect this and I should probably plan for it and I should probably just chill out. I put a post on the Progressive Community Facebook group venting my spleen about this and a few very wise people said, Peter, you just need to chill. And that's probably true. But it just would have been so good to have exchanged contracts on that property. Will it happen? Well, yes, it probably will happen anyway. Hopefully it's going to happen. But it would have been nicer if it actually happened as I'd wanted it to happen. There we are. Rant number one out of the way. And as I say, if you know me and you're a little bit shocked about me having a rant, sorry about that. But there we are. These things just need to come out. This is very therapeutic for me and very cathartic. So let me think about all the other things I want to have a little rant about. Right, well, rant number two, very much related to rant number one, is solicitors. Now, I realise I'm going to offend a lot of people if I'm not careful here, and I'm not looking to offend anybody at all. And by the way, if you're a solicitor, please get in touch on the Progressive uh, Facebook group. Let me know your thoughts on this, because I know that I'm going to be very biased and very jaundiced and very unfair here. And this is said a little bit with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, so please don't take it too seriously. But do you know, of all the professions that I have to deal with as a property professional myself, I think solicitors can be the most difficult. And I don't know what it is that happens at law school, whether solicitors are just taught to act in a particular way. But going back to my previous round, where I said that I needed to get the ex contracts exchanged before Christmas, and my solicitor said, Peter, yeah, absolutely no problem, but I didn't quite believe it. It didn't happen, and I knew it wasn't going to happen. But the thing which I suppose really gets to me is that I suspect that my solicitor doesn't really care, and they probably knew it wasn't really going to happen. I was being humoured. The problem is, though, in my experience, and it may be just me, so please do get in touch on the Facebook group. Let me know your thoughts on this. But solicitors tend to do what they want to do when they want to do it regardless of what their client wants. Now, I had a really good example of this a few years back when I was trying to actually complete on a property I'd already exchanged. I was trying to complete on it. And I was telling my solicitor, please complete the deal. And there was some technicality, which actually wasn't a technicality. And I was buying for cash, and I think I wasn't having searches because I was using an indemnity policy instead of searches. And for whatever reason, my solicitor wouldn't complete the deal. And the vendor was going crazy at me, and I was going crazy at my solicitor. And my solicitor couldn't really give me a good reason why they wouldn't complete. They just didn't want to do it. There was some very minor technicality, which I was telling them it didn't matter to me. I said, look, I'm going to put this in writing to indemnify you. Don't worry about that. Just complete the deal. And they wouldn't do it. And that drove me spare. Got no idea why that happened. Eventually, I had to pick up the phone to the senior partner of this firm. And guess what? The whole thing went through a couple of hours later. Absolutely crazy. Don't really understand that. Another example, and again, as I say, I'm sorry to pick on you solicitors. Please do feel free to come and defend yourselves on the Facebook group. But the property which I was looking to exchange before Christmas, very good example. Now the vendor is unrepresented. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a director vendor case. And so the vendor needed a solicitor. I went to my solicitor and said, the vendor's unrepresented and needs a solicitor. Is there anybody who you particularly like working with who you could recommend who we can actually ask to act for the vendor? So my solicitor said, yes, try this particular solicitor. So I emailed the recommended solicitor and I explained exactly the situation. 
and I explained that we needed to exchange contracts before Christmas. Now this is about a month before Christmas. I said, please bear in mind that we need to exchange contracts before Christmas. The reply came back, Peter, that's absolutely fine. We will act for the vendor, no problem. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Nothing happened, absolutely nothing happened. So about two weeks later, and bear in mind that this was an email sent a month before Christmas, and you've already heard my thoughts on Christmas and what's going to happen over Christmas. Two weeks later, I emailed that solicitor and I said, have you sent out the paperwork yet to get yourself appointed by the vendor? Guess what they came back with? No, we haven't sent out the paperwork yet. It's going to go out this week. This week? That's three weeks now. And you knew we were going to try and exchange before Christmas. What makes it even worse is that the last line of the email said, oh, and by the way, please don't contact us direct anymore because you need to go through your solicitor. What? I'm the one who recommended you. I'm the one who referred you. You could just say, thank you for your referral. But no, none of that. Now, I don't know what was happening in the office. As I say, it could have been too many mince pies. These things happen, don't they? But there we are. There's my second rant of the day. We've had Christmas, now we've had solicitors. Can you imagine trying to exchange contracts over Christmas? You've got Christmas and solicitors. Now you can see why I'm particularly wound up today. I must go and have a drink of water and calm myself down while I think about the next thing I'm going to have a rant about. By the way, I'm really enjoying this. I hope you're enjoying it too. Okay, now I'm really getting into the swing of things. Rant number three. Now you probably know if you know me, that I'm a chartered surveyor. I always use my little introduction at the beginning of every podcast. Peter Jones, chartered surveyor, author and property investor, chartered surveyor. Been in the property business now for over 35 years. Qualified as a surveyor back in 1983. Can you believe that? I bet most of my listeners weren't even born then. There we go. 1983. So I've been around a long time. Hmm, that makes you think. Anyway, surveyors, do I love them? Well, no, not really. And particularly now that I'm actually on the other side of the fence as a property investor and not a surveyor. Back in the day, and this is going back sort of 25, 30 years, I used to do mortgage valuations and I used to do structural surveys. From that, I actually moved on into commercial property. But I know how to do, I know how the system works. I know how it used to work. I know how the, the processes were put in place to make sure that mortgage valuations happened and the sort of things that a surveyor would be thinking about when they're putting a valuation on the property. Here's my rant about surveyors. Down valuations are a fact of life in property, but where I invest, it's almost like a down valuation has become the norm. So in fact, it's not even a down valuation now. What would have been a down valuation is now the level of value, if that makes sense. And that cannot be right, because I know as an investor, and I know, and I don't mean to sound arrogant about this, but I know as somebody who's been in property for over 35 years, what the value of a particular asset is going to be, how can the valuers be putting those figures on those properties? I just do not get it. Now, if you don't know how it all works, usually a valuer will value a property by comparison with other properties which are similar, which have sold. Now, a lot of properties actually aren't similar. Some of them have got some similarities, some of them aren't similar at all, and so the valuer has to make adjustments. So there's always going to be a little bit of wriggle room. I understand that. But sometimes, you get valuations which are just so way off the mark. You think, what on earth is going on here? What on earth is going on? And I'm sure that many of us have had down valuations. 
Again, if you've had a particularly galling and upsetting down valuation, why don't you post on the progressive community and tell us all about it? would be really interested to hear about it. By the way, if you're going to put your own little rants or comments in about the stuff I'm talking about in this podcast, why don't you tag me in? I'd love to see what you're saying and maybe we'll get into a bit of a conversation about it. Again, also, if you're a surveyor and you want to respond to this, Please do, please do. Again, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I'm sure there's many surveyors who are doing a fantastic job. It just seems to be that where I'm investing particularly, valuers have become immensely cautious, and I don't really get what's happening. Now, you might be thinking, but Peter, as I said earlier, down valuations are a fact of life, and they are. I think the best story, although best is probably not the right way of describing it, one of the most extreme stories, maybe, is a better way of describing it, which still makes me laugh to this day, is when I had not just a down valuation, but a no valuation. And I remember I was talking to somebody in the progressive community, I think somebody who came along a masterclass one time, was asking me whether I'd, whether I'd ever had a down valuation. And I said, a down valuation? Well, I can beat that. I've actually had a no valuation. And this is what happened. I was buying a, a, a couple of flats, a pair of flats, uh, it was like a terraced house, which was as two flats. Really nice property, or so I thought. And I agreed the price, and I spoke to my mortgage broker, and my mortgage broker put in a, an application to the bank, and the bank sent out their valuer. And I was expecting it all to go through very smoothly, wasn't expecting any hiccups at all. But this is actually what happened. The valuer drove up to the property, and my managing agent was there, ready to, to meet him, to let him into the property and show him around. And the valuer just sat in the car. So my managing agent sort of went round to the driver's side and sort of tapped on the window and said, is everything okay? After a bit, after waiting for about 10 minutes for this guy to get out of the car. And he wound his window down and he said, I'm not even, he said, you've got to be joking, haven't you? He said, I'm not even going to get out of the car. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, I'm not even going to put a value on those properties. We're not lending on those. It's just not going to happen. And so while my managing agent sort of stood there with his jaw sort of hanging open, his mouth hanging open, his jaw hit his chest thinking, what is going on? The valuer drove off. The valuer did not like that area. The valuer did not like those flats. Whether something else had happened that day to upset him, I don't know. But he refused even to get out of the car to do a valuation. So have I, ha have I ever had a down valuation? Of course, but come on, see if you can beat that. Maybe you've had a, the case where the valuer wouldn't even leave the office. I don't know. Anyway, if you're wondering, it all ended well, because what did I do? Well, I must admit that I was a little bit upset when my managing agent rang me and told me that the valuer wouldn't even get out of the car. I spluttered a few expletives, probably, which my mother would have been quite ashamed of me if she had heard me say them. But what do you do? Well, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself down. One of the key attributes, I think, of a successful property investor is persistence and not giving up. So I did what every reasonable property investor would do. I dumped the problem back onto my mortgage broker. My mortgage broker found another bank. That bank sent out their valuer, and there was no problem at all. That valuer got out of the car. That valuer grabbed his, his uh, clipboard and, uh, and his little form and his a little checklist which he could sort of tick as he went round. And he went round the property and he put a value on it. And the bank lent me the money. So it delayed everything by about a month, but it wasn't a terminal problem. But it just makes you think, strange and crazy times. Why would a valuer even do that? 
So there we go, that's rant number three. I'm really getting warmed up now, by the way, so I hope I'm not sort of hurting your, your eardrums with this, but this is really, really good for me. I hope it's good for you too. So rant number four, and I'm going to have to be very careful with this because I'm a Chartered Surveyor, but rant number four is actually the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. Yes, that might surprise a few of you. What could a, an esteemed body like this, the RICS done to upset me? Well, to be honest with you, going back to my previous rant, isn't it for the RICS to actually establish the guidelines and the working procedures for valuers as to how they value properties? Ah, you might be thinking, but surely, Peter, they already do. Well, yes, they do, to an extent. Now, if you're not a surveyor and you don't know about the technicalities, I don't want to sort of get too heavy about this. I don't want to get into too much detail. But yes, the RICS, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, do produce guidelines telling valuers how they're meant to value properties because most valuers who do mortgage valuations and such like are members of the RICS and they're the body that they are accountable to. So back in the dim and distant, when I was a charter surveyor out doing mortgage valuations, for example, there, there was a thing called the Red Book, and I'm, there probably still is a Red Book, and it's a big file which tells valuers all the kind of stuff which they need to be thinking about when they're doing a valuation. And it even gives a definition of what value is. I know that quite often if you say to somebody, you know, what, what, what is value or, or what, what establishes value, then the, the, the easy answer is, well, it's what somebody will pay for a property. Not quite as easy as that because the RICS have a definition of value which goes beyond that. Why? Because sometimes, as they say, somebody who's buying a property might be a special purchaser. So, for example, there may be somebody in the market who would overbid for a property for a particular reason. A developer who's compiling a development site, for example, might overpay for a little bit of the site in order to release the value on the rest of the site. So when you're doing an open market valuation, then little anomalies like that need to be sifted out. And that's why the RICS have a definition of open market value. Now, one of the things which the definition of open market value assumes is a willing seller as well as a willing buyer. Here's the thing, though. And we saw this particularly in the, the crash of, sort of 2007, 2008, and I'm sure we'll see it again in the future. And there's still a little bit of a shadow and an echo of this, depending upon where you're buying in the country at the moment. But when times are bad, many people sell their properties who actually are not what we could call willing sellers. They have to sell. They don't really want to sell, but they have to sell. And that can distort the market because they'll be prepared to take a lower price than if they were willing, if that makes sense. So in bad times, during crashes, and as I say, there's a little bit of an echo and an overhang of this in some parts of the country, even, even now, there can be a distortion of the market because of properties, for example, being sold through auction. Now, auctions doesn't necessarily mean the property is going to be sold cheap. And in fact, when you watch Homes Under the Hammer, it kind of gives that impression. Not always the case. During good times, people can actually end up overpaying at an auction, which is why going to auction isn't necessarily a good strategy for a complete beginner. But when times are hard and everybody's struggling to sell, then probably 
In most instances, properties being sold through an auction probably are being sold quite cheap. Now, the difficulty is, of course, that any valuers who are out valuing properties are going to look at the evidence provided by all sales and they're going to use the evidence provided by all sales in order to come up with their figure. Technically speaking, though, we could have a bit of an argument and a discussion with them as to whether they should be discounting evidence provided, for example, by sellers who are clearly distressed because they're not really a willing seller. Now, it's a bit of a grey area and a bit of a semantic moot point, and I'm sure we can argue it always, but that could be an explanation as to why sometimes we get some, what we consider to be crazy down valuations. Now, this is my big bugbear. This is the reason for the rant. This is where I'm really building up to, so just bear with me on this. My personal opinion, as I say, I'm not trying to diss the RICS, done a lot of good stuff, but surely it's the RICS's responsibility to remind their members that their members' function is to report the market and not to make the market. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that where I've been investing, the value of properties isn't determined by the amount of money that is agreed between a seller and a buyer, but the value of the property is being determined by the figure that the valuer puts on the valuation form, and that cannot be right. So, for example, because I buy up in the northeast, it's still very possible to buy a property, oh, I don't know, you get £50,000. But let's say a decent property for renting out for buy-to-let purposes is 80000 It would not be beyond our wildest imagination to foresee a situation where we might agree £80,000 for a property. We might be very happy to pay £80,000. The vendor might be very happy to accept £80,000, but the value is going to come around and stick 70 or even 60 on it just because that's the tone of the values that they're using at the moment. And it doesn't relate to what's actually happening in the market. But if they put a valuation and say 60 on the property, even though you're prepared to pay 80, what's going to happen if that happens? What if they do come along and put 60 on the property, which is 80,000? They're creating a new level of value, aren't they? Because ultimately, the bank's going to lend on the 60, not the 80. Anybody looking at the evidence is going to think, well, the properties are only worth 60, even though somebody would have paid 80. It doesn't make sense. And in my view, surveyors are making the market and they're not doing what I think their primary function should be, which is to report the market. So there we are. By the way, if you're wondering, have I said anything to the RICS? Yes, I have. So although I'm talking about them behind their back, I don't feel too guilty because I've told them what I think. I wrote to them. I never got a response. But if there's anybody out there from RICSHQ who are listening, please, please, please take this on board because it's one of the reasons, I think, that some parts of the country are still seeing property prices being held back. OK, so who can I have a go at next? I tell you what, let's have a go at the banks. Show me a hand if you like the banks. Oh, banks, banks, banks. Put together a group of people. Let's have a, let's have a cocktail party with solicitors, surveyors, I don't know, Father Christmas. Ah, oh, here we go. Really getting me going now. Banks. What have I got against the banks? Well, actually, not too much, because if it wasn't for the banks, I wouldn't be on this podcast, because all of my properties are 100% financed by other people's money. Wondering how I did that? Well, we can talk about that again. Tag me in a post. I'll tell you how it happened. But effectively, every property I own is no money down to me, because 
I've always used borrowed money, and most of that money has come from banks. Most of the banks have been buy-to-let lenders, and most of them have actually been very generous with me. So in that respect, I have nothing against the banks. But if I do have something against the banks, it's this. When I first started buying properties up in the northeast of England around Newcastle, the minimum valuation which the bank would accept before they'd make a loan on a property was £20,000. Yeah, can you believe that? I mean, this is going back 17 years, so it's like the Dark Ages. 17 years ago, you could buy a flat in Newcastle for about £18,000 and you could get a double-figure yield on it. Amazing days. But of course, values have gone up across the whole of the UK. And the days of buying them for £18,000 didn't last too long for me, actually. Within a few years of me starting to develop my portfolio in the northeast, prices doubled, then they doubled again, which is great news, happy days. What happened then, though? Well, not surprisingly, the banks increased their minimum valuation amount. Now, I don't blame them for doing that. But where are the minimum valuations now? Well, here's the thing. My principal lender, I'm not going to name and shame them, but my principal lender, back in the dim and distant, a lender with whom I've got multiple, multiple dozens of mortgages, and who you would think would have a vested interest in supporting the market, increased their minimum valuation to £75,000. Now, if you're in London or the South East, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Because you can't even get a garden shed for £75,000. I understand that. But going back to an earlier point in my rant, you can still buy properties in Newcastle and, that area and around the North East and other parts of the North of England and maybe bits of Wales and other places in the UK. It's still entirely possible to buy perfectly decent, really good property for buy-to-let for less than £75,000. So if one of the main buy-to-let lenders has this arbitrary minimum valuation level of £75,000, what does that mean in practice? It means in practice, large swathes of the country have properties where you're not going to be able to get a mortgage. Now, the proviso to that is there's still a couple of lenders who will lend on lower valuations. Birmingham Midshires, at the time of recording this, will lend on a minimum valuation of 40, and the Mortgage Works will lend on a minimum valuation of 50. Now, up until recently, that in itself was a little bit of a problem because we're now all buying our properties into limited companies, aren't we, because of the tax changes and clause stroke section 24? Yeah, well, up until recently, the Mortgage Works, for example, didn't lend to limited companies. Interestingly, they have just started doing so, so less of a problem. But what it effectively means is that if you want to do buy-to-let investing outside of the south of England, you're probably being restricted to just a few lenders. And if there's only a few lenders, what happens in the market? Well, it's an interesting point, isn't it? We think about property prices being pushed by demand, but that's only half the story. Demand on its own actually doesn't push property prices. When I hear people saying things like, because of the growth in the population, there's going to be a great demand for property and so therefore prices have to go up, I kind of look at it a little bit askew because I think it's not quite true. Demand is part of it, but that demand needs to be backed by the availability of finance because it doesn't matter how many people want to buy property, if they can't get hold of the money to buy the property, those prices aren't going anywhere. And again, this is another reason why I think the market has been held back 
in large areas of the country and why there's such a north-south divide. The banks, after the crisis in 2007-2008, decided they're going to be a bit more picky about where they lent, and so they've come up with a fairly arbitrary minimum valuation which excludes a lot of property outside of or I know, a line probably from Bristol to Hull. North of that line, west of that line, if you're looking for good, solid, cheap buy-to-let properties, probably not going to be able to go to those lenders. You're probably going to be very limited as to where you can get that finance. That is another reason why I'm having a bit of a rant against the banks. So there we are. I think that's rant number five. All this is feeling so good. What else can I have a go at? Okay, rant number six. Well, we can't go much further without talking about politicians, can we? Politicians? Don't we all love our local politicians? Don't we all love our national politicians? Well, probably not a lot. Aren't they rated alongside estate agents? Oh, by the way, I shouldn't say that because I do love estate agents. By the way, going off at a tangent, not having a rant at estate agents. I think estate agents have a lot of bad press. I've bought a lot of good deals through estate agents, and estate agents should be your best friends in property, actually, truth be told. So there we are. I take that back. It was only a little bit of a quip. Forget that. Never said it. But politicians. Now, come on, politicians. Why is it that all politicians seem to think that all landlords, all investors, are just crooks and that we're just one step away from jail? Why is that? Why is it that politicians constantly feel the need to bring in regulations? Well, the truth of the matter is, and let's have a rant against them as well, it's about the rogue landlords. So it's the politicians and rogue landlords. They're both in it together. Politicians, and maybe there's some justification in this, feel that they need to protect the general public, they need to protect tenants from rogue landlords. Are there rogue landlords out there? Undoubtedly there are some. Now I suspect there probably aren't as many as the politicians imagine there are. And it's that usual thing, isn't it? One or two people are going to ruin it for the majority. Because those one or two people who are doing stuff which they shouldn't do, who are sailing a bit close to the edge, who are ignoring the regulations, who are cramming eight people into a room, they're the ones who are ruining it for the majority who are producing good, decent quality accommodation and doing their best to comply with all the regulations which the politicians keep chucking at us. But I suppose I can understand it from the politicians' point of view. They need a quick win, they need to look as if they're doing something positive, they want to appeal to the masses, and let's face it, the masses probably aren't property investors or landlords, the masses are probably now renting property. I totally get that. But there has to be an element of realism about this, because what's going to happen as new regulations are piled on top of us, as the private renters sector becomes more and more regulated, is that the rogue landlords who would break the law anyway are going to continue to break the law. I mean, let's face it, if they're ignoring the law now and they're ignoring the regulations now and they're effectively sticking one finger up at the regulations and the politicians, are they suddenly going to change their minds and come on board and become good law-abiding citizens just because there's more regulations? Well, of course not. But what will happen is that all the decent landlords who are trying to provide decent accommodation will just get fed up of all the regulations. Undoubtedly, some people will leave the market. Others who might have come into the market won't come into the market. And ultimately, what that's going to do is it's going to reduce choice for tenants and it's probably going to increase rents. Now, here I am having a rant, but even as I say this, I'm almost beginning to think this sounds like good news, doesn't it, if you've already got properties? Because the chances are your competition might disappear. 
your rents might go up. But that's not really the point. Wouldn't it be nice if instead of trying to regulate us, politicians maybe just acknowledge what a great job we do? I provide a lot of properties for social housing, for example. A lot of my tenants are actually on benefits, and I have no problem with that. Sometimes people say to me, well, aren't people on benefits a bit of a handful? No, no more than any other tenant. They're just people. People are people. And I have good tenants and I have bad tenants, but it's nothing to do whether they're on benefits or not. But do you know what? Since the demise of the council house, I have been providing accommodation for what we could call social tenants. Do I ever get any thanks from the government for that? No. What do politicians want to do? Well, they see me as being greedy because I collect my housing benefit. But hey, come on, guys. I am providing accommodation. I am providing flats for my tenants. I'm not actually asking for something I shouldn't get, am I? Now, if I'm going to really niche this down, let me have a go about local politicians. Now, I don't know if you know how democracy works in this country, but if you want to be a local councillor, I think pretty much anybody can stand. You wouldn't necessarily even have to be part of a political party. You could just start as an independent and get yourself elected. And probably, let's be honest, in small parish councils and, and smaller boroughs, you probably only need to get a couple of hundred votes to get yourself voted onto the council as a councillor. Now, I'm exaggerating the point slightly, but probably only a bit. But here's the thing. Once somebody becomes a councillor, they end up with an immense amount of power. Really? Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends which department they get themselves into. I was thinking the other day, because I put in a planning application to build some houses. Now, I don't know whether you've heard this, but apparently there's a shortage of houses in the country. The government are saying that we ought to be building 300,000 new houses every year. So I put a planning application in to build five houses on a small plot of land. By the way, where this plot of land is, five houses would have been a fantastic way of developing the plot of land. It wasn't going to create an eyesore, it wasn't going to create traffic problems, it wasn't going to create any noise nuisance, nothing like that. It would have just have provided five good quality, affordable homes, not even big mansions, but affordable homes for young working people. I think that would be exactly what they want. What happens though? It goes to the planning committee. Now, this is the thing about our dem democratic system. When you put in a planning application, the chances are it's going to be dealt with by the full-time official at the council, the planning officer. The planning officer has probably got a degree or a diploma in planning. They've probably been in planning for years. They know their area inside out. They know what the area needs. And they make recommendations to the committee. In this particular instance, the planning officer recommended to the committee that the planning application be granted. Now, who's on the committee? Ah, here we go. It's the elected representatives. So, if you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, you can get yourselves elected as a councillor and you can get yourselves appointed to the planning committee. So, what happened when it went to the planning committee? Mm -mm, not happening. No, we don't want five houses, but we might consider four. So what have I got to do? I've got to resubmit everything and hope that they're now going to allow me to build four houses at a time when the country is crying out for more accommodation. And that extra house, honestly, if you could see it, if I could show you the plans, you'd be thinking, well, what is the big deal? 
I don't know what the big deal is. I don't know why it was turned down. And the planning officer was disappointed it was turned down as well, against their recommendations. What's the point of having full-time officials if it's just going to be overturned by people who've just got themselves elected, who know nothing about the system? Okay, now this is feeling very good, but I realise I better start wrapping this up now because there's probably only so much of me ranting that you want to listen to. So here's my very last rant of the day, my very last rant of the new year. And this is going to surprise you. And by the way, if you're listening to this, I'm really not thinking about you when I say this. I'm thinking about somebody else. And maybe you know that somebody else as well because you might have met them at a course somewhere with a property trainer, not even necessarily with Progressive. So don't think I'm talking about you. But my last rant is reserved for people who do property education and who confuse it with being magic fairy dust. Now, what do I mean by that? And am I being a bit harsh? Well, very occasionally, and probably not at Progressive, as I'm saying, I'm not thinking of you, but I'll meet people who do property education courses. They learn a strategy, they learn a system, and by the virtue of the fact that they've actually been to the training, they kind of then go off imagining that everything is going to happen and it's all going to happen for them. But here's the thing. Property education will show you how to do it, but somebody's actually got to go out and do the doing. Now, I'm not talking to you, but you maybe it resonates with people that you've met on particular trainings. You've actually got to do the work. Doing the training is only the first step. Doing the training is probably only the first 5 or 10%. The rest of it, the, rest, the next 85 to 90% is the effort of actually going out and doing. And it's the action which is important, isn't it? The technical skills, the knowledge is very easy to acquire. But what we have to do once we've got that is actually go out and apply it. Taking action is absolute key to success in any field. Property is no different. And I know that you know that. So I don't even know why I'm saying it, because I, I'm, as I say, I'm thinking about other people, not thinking of anybody in particular. But don't confuse having the education for meaning it's all going to fall into your lap. It won't. We've all got to go out and do the stuff that we need to do. And actually, that's why we're paid as property investors. That's why we make profits as property investors, because we go out and we do the stuff and we take the actions. And sometimes we take actions which we feel very uncomfortable about, which push us beyond our comfort zone. That's why we make our money. That's why our assets perform. That's why we buy the best properties, because we go and take the right actions and we do the things that we know that we're meant to do. So don't come on a property course and then just expect it all to happen for you and then go around moaning because it hasn't all happened for you. Do the course and then go out and do something. And when you've done it, get in touch on the Progressive community on the Facebook group. Tell us what you've done and we'll all celebrate together. Because actually, one thing about property, and, and if you've been to Masterclass or any other, other trainings which I'm involved in, you would have heard me saying this, property itself, property investing, is actually very simple in terms of the concept, but it's not easy because you do have to actually go out and do some hard work. So there we are. That's my final rant. I don't know how you feel. I feel exhausted but exhilarated. So maybe I'll do one of these every year just after Christmas and get it all off my system. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed it. As I say, if you've got any comments, if you're a solicitor or a surveyor and you want to join in the debate, please take it with a pinch of salt, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, but post on the Facebook group, tag me in, and we'll have a bit of a discussion. If you've enjoyed this podcast, 
can I ask you a favour? Please can you go on to wherever you listen to it and can you leave a review? Preferably a nice review. You can leave a horrible review if you want, but please, if, if you can, go and leave a nice review. That'd be really helpful. And if you want to get in touch, well, I've got a confession. Here we are. Now you can have a rant at me. All those times I've been asking you to message me, to give me ideas. Now, I don't know whether it's me. I don't know whether I'm just a bit of a numpty or whether I've got fat thumbs or whatever it is. But I've been very aware and conscious of messages coming in with ideas for future podcasts and particular questions. When I went to get them off my phone, I couldn't find a lot of them. Now, luckily, I'd written a few of them down, and in a future podcast, we're going to look at some of those questions. But if you've messaged me and I haven't responded, then apologies. So I've been thinking over Christmas, how can we do this a better way? So this is what I suggest we do going forward. Get in touch with me via the Facebook group and tag me in. Then it's going to be there for all time, isn't it? And I will pick it up. So if you've messaged me, apologies. By the way, not a rant, but just a request, to be honest, a, a respectful, humble request. But quite a few people have been sending me messages in, asking me very specific questions about their property pos position, property predicaments, property problems. Much as I would love to help you all individually, I'm sure you understand I get hundreds of messages and hundreds of emails every week. And unfortunately, I can't provide free one-on-one -on -one mentoring, much as I'd like to. So if I don't get back to you, or if it takes me a long time to get back to you, then please just bear with me, because unfortunately I can't possibly answer all of the messages and all of the emails that I get. So if you have an idea for a podcast or a subject you'd like covered, then put it up on the Facebook group, tag me in, and then I'll see it. Otherwise, it's been great letting them fall this steam. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I'll see you in the next podcast. Until then, here's to successful property investing.